0: the following is a production by cutting to the chase podcast Sanchez, writer for Fangraphs, SB Nation's Bleed Cubby Blue, the co-host of Cuppa Cubby Blue with Andy Cruz, Vanasek. How are you? Thanks for coming on.
1: I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me.
0: Doing well. So I'm always curious. Uh, I like to ask, you know, certain guests that I have on. I'm curious, how did you get into baseball writing? And I think it's really cool that you're with Fangraphs. Really awesome. But in general, uh Nation, fan Nation, the podcast, how did all that kind of come about for you?
1: Yeah, so that's a wild ride. Um, baseball writing is something that I have done uh, most of my life, actually. So I grew up in this tiny town, and I grew up in a baseball family. My brother played Little League and Babe Ruth and all that jazz. And our newspaper didn't really have the resources to cover that type of stuff. But by the time he got about 12 years old, their Little League team was really good, and I wanted – it to be in the local paper so (laughs) I kind of uh, I was one of those kids that that, like was pestering people a little bit and my mom knew the editor of the paper it's super small town so like everybody knows everybody and she was basically like look she wants to write these things I know you don't have the resources to if they're good publish them if they're not good don't like but just give her a shot and so I started writing up my brother's baseball teams for the local paper when I was in like junior high I actually put it on the shelf for a while because I spent most of my early career as a teacher running debate programs all over the country. And I don't, I don't know, like, it was just weird to write while being a teacher. For one thing, teaching is super busy, like I didn't feel like I had any spare time at all. But for another thing, it, it just always felt weird. Like if my students found my blog or something, what would they <laughs> think about it? And I don't know why I was so self conscious about it. So I kind of put writing on the shelf. Um, but I stayed involved in the SB Nation team sites because that was where I followed the Cubs while I was living out in Boston. And through that, I met the editor of Bleed Cubby Blue, Al Yellen. He became a friend of mine. And when I'm by the time I moved to Chicago in about 2014, Al and I were good friends. We would watch baseball games together, and every now and again I would have – some ideas that weren't being covered on the site. And so one day he actually just asked me to write something up. I um, happened to be walking around. Do you remember after the Cubs finally made it to the World Series, they like wrote on chalk on the walls of Wrigley, all these messages? So, yeah. yeah, I happened to be there right when that got started. So I was hanging out outside the wall and I saw the first messages go up and I took a bunch of pictures. We traced down who the guy was that brought the chalk and all this stuff. And so that was my first piece for Bleed Cubby Blue. It was actually there under like my pseudonym, I think. And it did really well. So Al asked me if I wanted to keep writing for the site and everything else came out of that.
0: That's awesome. I like that. I like how you were just like, I want to cover my brother and, you know, help get these articles out there. So that's really cool how you got started. It's always fun to listen to how people did get started because like for me it was pretty random myself just five years ago and I've just kind of randomly run with it like pot like this podcast like I just started this last year and I'm like here I am
1: (laughs) yeah totally I think that it's you know just do it just like if you feel like you have something to say exactly out into the world get a wordpress get a blog find a blog that's established ask if you can like send them some pieces and see what they say if you want to start a pod, I mean, Cup of Cubby Blue came about. I pestered Al about a podcast for two years. I was like, hey, if there's yeah. ever going to be a Bleed Cubby Blue podcast, I would like to do, I would like to run with that. I think I could do it. And he let me do it. They wanted all of the team sites to have one. And so I got a shot to try that out. And, you know, a couple years later, we're over a hundred episodes in and it's just yeah. a different nice. take on, there's a million Cubs podcasts, but we just offer a different take, right? Like everybody has their own flavor, their things that they like. And so I think that that's really helpful. And like I and you know, like you were saying, just do it. Just like put your words out in the yep. universe and see what people are thinking about them.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, that's that's my kind of my motto too. just I just did it. And here I am just doing it. And it's been <laughs> cool. And I've gotten better. Like I'm, the, I'm I always say this. I'm not an expert at all. I have just figured out my technique for editing, doing you know Zencaster, Zoom, whatever, figuring out my process and editing in GarageBand, and I'm a perfectionist, but I, I like that I've established this. And it's really cool how you said the podcast got started because I write for the Blue Jackets SB Nation page over at the Canon. and I was the same way. I was like, "Are we doing a podcast? What are we gonna do a podcast?" And we're also just over 100 episodes. We're uh, I think we just did our 116th the other day, so we're in the same kind of boat there too. I was I kept pestering them too, and I was like, "Let's do a podcast." So. Uh, and it was funny because I was just a contributor on it, not a hoster. Or, or I was a, kind of a guest host, I guess, but um, a co-host. But uh, now I'm the full guy editing and hosting. So anyway, uh, really funny how I kind of also came about, kind of the same uh, same aspect, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's wild. I'm totally self-taught on Audacity, and mm-hmm. the first couple of episodes, I was like, I don't know if this is going to come together. Oh, I yeah. was just like, I've got these, I've got this intro sound bit, and I've got this file and I don't know how to turn it into anything usable. And
0: right, and now I'm right. down to the point,
1: I'm like, oh, I could edit out that um there. I could make that sound a yep. lot cleaner. <laughs> but at, at first it was, I, I really wondered if I was in over my head. But that's that's part of the fun, right? When you find yourself in situations that are challenging and you figure out a way to work through them, that's really where growth happens. And so I... I cannot stress enough, like that. It's just a thing that if you if you're passionate about it, see what happens. So,
0: absolutely, exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, same thing. I was doing an iMovie, and I was like, okay, I could probably figure this out. And I was like, this sounds horrible. I didn't have a mic. I didn't have. <laughs> I don't even think I had my headphones at the time, or I wasn't using headphones. I was like, "This sounds horrible," but now we've we've gotten it. But also talking about your podcast at Cuppa Cubby Blue, I just listened to the Beth Moans podcast just before we started recording. Really good stuff, and of course, she just made history becoming the first female to call play by play for the Chicago Cubs. So really cool opportunity. Really cool that you got to talk with her and a really good podcast as well.
1: Thank you. That was super fun. I, so when I was a little kid, I had aspirations that I was going to be Harry Carey when I grew up because I watched the Cubs. So I just thought that was, you know, how baseball worked. I don't think that a woman is ever going to be the Harry Carey (laughs) of baseball, but I think that there's, there's a, there are women voices out there that can and will call play by play for these teams. And it's not always just going to be Susan Waldman and the Yankees. It Women are coming in these jobs and it's going to be very cool to hear the game called through a slightly different perspective. One of the things that I really love about listening to Beth cu- call the games over Mother's Day weekend, you know, her, she mentioned this on our podcast, her and JD are both from upstate New York and they're both about the same age. And so they had this rapport immediately And it was cool that she predicted that, that she sort of knew that was a thing that she could play off of. But that also when you saw it all come together, it seemed so seamless and easy. And it it's interesting to me because it strikes me that the amount of work and professionalism that must go in to calling games with different people who you don't know yet. I mean, you know, you host a podcast, like you're talking to a new person. Sometimes you haven't heard their voice before. You don't know their mannerisms. You're kind of playing off of how that works. And so I just thought that was really neat to see that come together. I thought she did an awesome job. And the last thing that I'll say, which I just, because it's something we've been dealing with in Chicago this year. So I think it's worth Pointing out, you know, we lost our longtime play by play person in Len Casper here. If you're a Cubs fan, he came on our podcast too. One of the things he talked about was that rapport that you develop with fans, that like fans are really trusting you and letting you into their lives for three hours every night. So you become like a family friend almost. And I've thought it I've thought about that a lot as different people have cycled in and out of that role with the Cubs this year because they it really is like getting used to like five new people yeah, all of a sudden where true. it's been one person for 13, 15 years prior to that. And so I just think it's interesting to watch that entire process play out as you get to know Boog, as you get to know Beth, as you get to hear this game through the different vantage points of different people. I think it's really fascinating.
0: Yeah, and JD's kind of a, a familiar voice, obviously. Uh, if, if, if he wasn't there, it would definitely be a, a, definite, a new dynamic, but he kind of helps kind of keep that familiar tone, but yeah, I thought, I didn't catch uh, Sunday's game, I was out with Mother's Day, everything going on, but Saturday I did catch it, and you know, I think, I don't remember exactly who mentioned it on the pod, but... When someone said she kind of had that Doris Burke, kind of sounded like Doris Burke, I was like, yeah, that's it. it." It kind of reminded me of Doris Burke. But they're both, I mean, they're both professional. They're both awesome. And you're right about the rapport. You know, I have gained my own confidence, like you mentioned, doing like probably the same for you, doing a podcast, talking with different people, realizing like, okay, I got my topics, but I can just kind of roll with the convo and see how it goes, you know?
1: totally. Totally.
0: So one of my notes was thoughts on the current Cubs and I know that's so open ended but I'll just tell you so before the season I pegged them as about 85 wins give or take they're right about 500 and I was I actually had a tweet the other day that said you know maybe it's maybe it's usually like this I don't think so but it seems like every team in baseball save for a few either above or below 500 are all about 500 they're all bunched and I don't know if it's just a weird year we're back to a full 162, maybe there's more injuries. I don't know. But one thing about the Cubs that's been good has been sort of maybe that contact approach. Guys like Jake Marisnyk, Eric Sogard, specifically Matt Duffy have been awesome, just to name a few. Nico finally up, and hopefully he's back soon. I think he is going to be back on Friday, but uh, he's been really good. So, you know, you can't replace a guy like Ben Zobris, but I feel like maybe these those three are kind of helping... Kind of, you know, the offense is kind of still boomer bust. I know you had an article like that recently on Fangraphs, but you know, we've kind of seen some good things out of guys like Matt Duffy.
1: Yeah, I think Matt Duffy has been awesome. I, I am bummed that Jake Marisnyk, uh apparently hurt his hamstring again trying to run down a ball um, in Kyle Hendricks's last start against the Pirates. He had really uh, he was overperforming his career numbers by a lot, so I expected it to come to back to earth any day now, but. You know, ride that wave while you have it. If you have a guy who's got a WRC plus of 156, and if your listeners are not the most stat friendly people, all that means in baseball stat ease is that he's 56% better than the average MLB bat, which is great, right? You always want to be on the plus side of that, and anything up in the 50, 60, 70% better than average is great, is outstanding. Um, So I I was pretty bummed to see them lose Moriznick's bat in the lineup. I think it's interesting. You know, all the people you mentioned are the they're the role players they've been bringing in to try to plug this hole in terms of contact. They have a lot of three true outcome hitters. They have a lot of hitters who strike strike out walk and hit a ton of home runs. But that doesn't work very well if you don't have people setting the table who can cash in on those base When the bases are loaded, you need people who are not going to strike out and not going to hit into double plays. You need just a few guys who are going to be able to, you know, get a hit, get a couple guys in. Um, obviously, you'd love a home run there, but you just can't count on it all of the time. So I don't know about the Cubs. I... <laughs>
0: I know, right? I
1: actually pegged them in the preseason as either a 70-win team or a 90-win team. And what I mean by that is I think that if it looks like the Cubs are sitting about where they are right now, right about 500, a few games out of the division, maybe we could do well, maybe we couldn't. I think what's going to happen is that Jed Hoyer is going to trade a bunch of the guys who are on the last year of their deal and try to turn them into prospects for the next championship window. And I know Cubs fans don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. I, right. I love all of these players. I wish they would be Cubs forever. I would try to extend them if I was working in the Cubs front office, but I'm not, and it would be borderline malpractice for this team to be sitting on a 500 record and not try to turn Chris Bryant's most recent MVP year into a couple of prospects rather than just letting him walk at the end of the year. That same thing is yeah. true for Anthony Rizzo. It's true for Javier Baez. Wilson Contreras has two years left, but still – Like He's one of your most valuable assets, too, as a a catcher who can actually hit, plus his framing has improved considerably. So I think Cubs fans need to prepare themselves, because if they're kind of sitting in third place five, six games out, could make a run, could not, I don't think they're going to get a chance to prove themselves again. I I always kind of thought this team would win 90 games because they came out hot and Jed couldn't trade people, or they would win 70 games because they came out kind of meh and a bunch of guys got traded
0: totally agree yeah so you know before the season i was like yeah i think the team as is 85 now i'm not saying they're a world series contender but make the playoffs see what happens but i agree i don't want to lose guys you know potential free agents for nothing i don't want to necessarily trade guys but i do think that the return value is something you have to really consider like you mentioned and you know this goes back to you darvish you know before before like right after the season that ended last year I was talking with Jake Meisner over at Cubby's Crypt for Fansided, and I brought that up to him. I said, would you trade a guy like you Darvish, who's, what, 34, 35, coming off a great season to get that value? And then, of course, they did, but the value is questionable, at least right now. So I know some people are looking at that and thinking, oh, God, what are we going to trade potentially trade guys for? But I do agree. I do think that, and you know, before the season, I said, I don't know what Jed's going to do. Force his hand at the deadline. All they can do is play well. Guys like Bryant have a great start, which he has, and hopefully the illness or whatever is keeping him out isn't too bad. But yeah, you know, it's like, I think you're right. I think Jet's going to have to, Kimbrell's another guy. Craig Kimbrell's had a a really good start. So, you know, and I don't know. I know it's not unheard of. It could happen where you trade guys and they resign. Probably unlikely, but you never know. If they want to come back, they could.
1: Yeah, I was a lot more optimistic about getting, at least Anthony Rizzo, it felt like, how, how do you, can you not extend Anthony yeah. Rizzo? He's He is your franchise right. guy. And yeah. he's the guy, you know, so Anthony Rizzo was originally drafted by the Red Sox when Jed and Theo were both with the Red Sox. Jed goes to San Diego from the Red Sox, and the first thing he does is acquire Anthony Rizzo. So Jed gets Rizzo on the Padres, right? Jed comes to Chicago, and the first thing he does with Theo in Chicago is trade for Anthony Rizzo. With the Padres, they send Andrew Kashner to San Diego. They get Anthony Rizzo in the Cubs farm system. So it's sort of wild to me that you've got this player who you've literally you've like, built your multiple franchises. You're like, yes, this is the guy, right? And when it comes time to offer him an extension, you lowball him. Like They, they asked him to take a cut and pay. He's making $14.5, $14 dollars 14000000 dollars this year. I can't remember if the .5 is accurate or not. And the deal they offered him was five years, 70, which is like 12.5-ish a year or something like that. I don't remember the numbers exactly off the top of my head, but it's it's less. It is less than you are paying him right now. It's no wonder he was offended and basically cut off all talks in spring training. And so it's one of those situations where you're kind of like, well, if that's how you've started, if the way you framed all of these conversations is... We're gonna trade you Darvish for one year of and, and Victor Caratini, by the way. Victor Caratini is like a throw-in in the Darvish deal to most people. Yeah. That's three years of a mm-hmm. quality catcher who would be a starter on most teams. Like I <laughs> so that's also a thing here. You've got you Darvish and Victor Caratini going to San Diego for one year of Zach Davies. And four kids who might be awesome. Like, I don't know what they are. Nobody knows what they are because they have not had a bat above instructional ball. So like <laughs> magic beans lottery tickets whatever you want to call it but it. that basically sets the tone for the rest of the league that hey if we wait the cubs out maybe we can get these guys for cheap maybe we can get them for some prospect that we got um in the fifth round instead of our blue chip first round prospect and, and i don't like that i think that that's problematic i think it's super problematic when you combine it with and we're going to try to extend our players, but not make them real offers. I just i i don't really know what's going on there, and i I like Jed Hoyer a lot. I trust that there is some strategy that he's trying to play out. I don't see it at the moment.
0: And see, I don't. Yeah, I agree. I don't know how much of it is Hoyer. I don't know how much of it is Ricketts just wanting to strip payroll or whatever. I know there's all this financial stuff you've heard about. I know I saw the tweet. What was it yesterday about the most valuable franchises in baseball, and the Cubs are sitting right there in like what the top six? So I mean, but they are poor. I know. And oh yeah, and see, I <laughs> talked with Ryan Davis. I'm sure you know Ryan Davis on Twitter. Um, I talked with him last. Off season and he had some interesting things because he you know wrote an article that he said Ricketts called shit and, you know he was like yeah what you're thinking or saying isn't true and he was saying you know uh, like us we look at it as a valuable franchise uh Ricketts is looking at the losses not the gains that they might be making and I get it I know there's payroll and all this stuff but to the average person it's like you're a billionaire this team can this team I'm sure there was losses last year with covid I get that but to cry poor, I mean, it just doesn't really – that's not relatable. That doesn't really work.
1: Well, there's lo- – it's it's what you were just saying. There's losses and then there's failing to meet your projected revenue. Yep. And Ian Happ yep. actually did a really good job calling this out last summer when all of the negotiations were going on about the shortened 2020 season because the fact of the matter is when you're talking about millions of dollars and, – and I want to be clear here because this is very different – When you're talking about family budgets, and I think that part of the reason that people get so caught up in this and they don't really know how to evaluate what the billionaires are saying versus what the millionaires are saying is they're thinking about their own budget. Where look, if I lost thirty percent of my income from my job this year, that would be a big deal. That would be problematic as hell. That would be crisis moment for me, Sarah Sanchez, because I don't make millions and millions of dollars, and so I'm not living on margins where I can like afford to save 30% of that off the top to be just like extra money for fun, right? And so most people here, you know, we we didn't bring in 30% or 50% or whatever. And they're thinking about it in terms of their own salary where they're like, "Wow, well, I made $60,000. If I were to lose 20,000 of that, that would be horrendous." And that is true. But if you are a 3.3 billion with a B dollar corporation, and you were planning on bringing in $400 million last year, and instead you only brought in $100 million, that is not a crisis for you. (laughs) That is, you did not make $300 million. You still have this $100 million, and you can figure out how to distribute it in the most fair way possible. Probably should go to your employees who are counting on their $60,000 check, rather than to line the pockets of the people who already have billion-dollar fortunes. And I just – I cannot stress enough that it's it's about how that distribution happens. And I feel like these baseball teams want us to just not do math.
0: <laughs> right, <laughs> they right. They want
1: us to just take their word that they're doing it in the most fair way possible as they lay off the people who made – yeah, I don't want to say like these were good careers. I'm just I like don't lay off your people making seventy five thousand dollars a year and tell me you're too poor to pay that salary. That's ridiculous. I don't think I don't believe that's true, right? Don't tell me that you can't afford to pay a baseball player my their like minimum wage five hundred ish thousand dollar salary. I think it's five seventy five this year. I might be wrong about that. I, the scale changes each year, but like that's not you can afford to pay that. Like. Maybe you can't afford to – maybe you can't afford to, like, renovate the hotel across the street. I believe you. You can't afford to renovate the hotel across the street.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like – I think it was the A's. I don't want to put the wrong team out there. I think it was Oakland last year. Caught some A team, anyway, caught some backlash. But then after the outcry, they decided, okay, we can pay these guys. And it's like, you could have done it all along. You just – whatever reason – only waited until and that's that's you know at least they did but they could have just done it initially and that would have been good PR too even though it should kind of be expected I guess it's kind of like okay this is good PR you just did this but yeah talking about kind of the Cubs on the field right now another another element that I was looking forward to was Adbert Auzalai and again I mentioned Nico I was hoping those two especially Auzalai would would kind of stick in the rotation I know it's early really impressive so far Keegan Thompson's another guy who I don't know what their I don't know exactly what his outlook might be potentially, but right now I like what I've seen. Had a good start against the Dodgers. Alzalai last night was victim of lack of run support. They kept getting guys on base against Bieber, just couldn't bring them in. So I know I've seen people say, Oh, I wish he could cut out the home runs. And I know you had a tweet that was like, you know, you missed the spot. You know, I don't I don't care about the home runs. Like, sure. I'm sure that'll that'll correct itself, but I like what I've seen. And he seems to be developing so far, which is definitely a, a good thing the for the Cubs going forward and for their rotation
1: I absolutely love Adbert he is one of my I've been keeping an eye on him for years I mean if you're a long-term Cubs fan you know that this was the guy the Cubs have not been great at developing pitching although this year looks like they may have fixed some of that but y- you know that yeah. for years now Adbert has been the guy the, the guy with starting potential you were just waiting for him to get healthy and The thing that was always a problem for him, at least in the time that he came up in 2019 and 2020, were the walks, right? So, 2019, he he didn't have a ton of innings. He only pitched 12 innings in the major leagues. His his walk rate was uh, 6.57 per nine, which is just way too high to stick in the major leagues. In 2020, that fell to about 5.48, but it's still too high, the strikeouts have always been there. The stuff has always been absolutely electric electric and good. I happened to be at his first start against the Mets in 2019, and I think, if I recall correctly, he struck out five of the last six batters he faced and, of course, gave up a home run to Todd Frazier. So <laughs> it was kind of one of those, oh, this is so good, but it's not so good type of things, um, just like yesterday. But this season, what he's managed to do is – absolutely get the walks under control and he has kept the strikeout rate above 10. So in 2021, his walk rate per nine innings is 1.97, which is about a third of what it was when he first came into the league. And he's still striking out 10.13 batters per nine innings. So I am loving this. I think that Adbert is absolutely what the Cubs rotation Needs going forward. And I'm really excited that he gets a chance to, you know, spend some time in the dugout all year next to Jake Arietta, who is another guy who had some struggles when he first came up, really figured it out. I think that has been good for him. I'm not worried if he gives up a home run here or there. I am, I'm worried when he starts walking people, which he has not done so far this season. And if he keeps that up, that is a, number two, number three starter in a couple of years, and he happens to be a Chicago Cub for a really long time, which makes me happy.
0: And I think to correct myself, I can't remember exactly, but I think actually it wasn't that he missed a spot. I think you mentioned that, you know, sometimes you just get beat. You can make your right pitch and just get beat. And so, yeah, like you said, I'd rather see maybe the home run, like the walks, control issues. That's one thing. If he doesn't have, it, that's awesome.
1: Oh, yeah. Let me actually pull Let me pull that up from yesterday because I I remember the tweet that you're talking about. Well, so Adbert gave up two home runs yesterday. They're the only runs he gave up. He gave up three runs total. Uh, all of them were off of home runs. The first was a two-run shot. I want to say it was Jose Ramirez. That pitch, Adbert just missed his spot. If you look, Wilson Contreras is set up down and low, and he, the he's moving his glove like all the way through the zone to where the ball would be, and then the ball goes out of the park, and it's like, well, you cannot throw that ball there to Jose Ramirez. You will get beat, and he did. The second one, though, was actually a really good pitch. It was kind of inside on the hands of the batter. And I remember – and it's exactly where Wilson was set up. I can't remember who hit it out. But I remember thinking, wow, that's a good spot for that ball to go that far. And it was just one of those situations where sometimes you're going to throw exactly what you meant to throw, and a batter is going to beat you. And I think it's a really big difference between you threw exactly what you wanted to, the batter hit a solo home run, kudos to the batter – And you missed your spot by 10 inches and Jose Ramirez lit you up.
0: (laughs) Exactly. So I was kind of thinking of both factors, I guess. Yeah, you're right. Um, The control issues, if he's corrected that, that's awesome to hear. And yeah, you know, home run is going to happen. He's going to, he's still young. He's still developing and refining. He, I think he's going to be fine. I'm sure he's going to continue, like you said, listening to Jake Arrieta talking with him can only help. He even mentioned Matt Duffy last night had uh, i forget exactly the words he mentioned, but he kind of. He was like, Duffy's a professional, true. He's like, what a great teammate, or I'm paraphrasing, but uh he's only going to learn from all these guys. And it's a, li- it's a life lesson. It's a lesson in the game. You give up a home run, a guy like R- Jose Ramirez, you'll learn <laughs> from next time. Like, okay, maybe I won't throw that pitch. <laughs> totally.
1: You know, and, and props to Bieber. He did exactly what an ace is supposed to do. Yeah. When he had the bases loaded, he got strikeouts and double plays. And that is what you want from an ace. The Cubs needed to capitalize on some of those moments, and they didn't. So... right. Getting beat by a Justin or getting getting beat by, why, I don't getting beat by a Shane Bieber. It's I can't easy. believe I just did the Justin <laughs> Bieber thing. Uh, oh my god!
0: <laughs> yeah, trust me, like it, it's easy.
1: Wow, uh, I literally I, I have made fun of other people for doing that, and I think that was a karma moment coming back to me. Um, <laughs> getting beat by Bieber, it's gonna happen. That's no shame. I think that the Cubs really hung in there against him for a long time and they put a lot of runners on it was it was a good game i'm not upset about that game
0: exactly so going to the fangraph so i know you were talking about how you kind of got started in, into writing i don't think you necessarily mentioned how you got into fangraphs i thought that was really awesome that 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 you're writing for fangraphs now how did that kind of uh, come together for you
1: so they put out a call for part-time contributors over the winter and it's funny because they had done that a couple of years ago too and i thought about applying then and I talked myself out of it. I was just like, I, I haven't written long enough. I don't have the right types of pieces. I don't have the right resume. Like all of the things that you would say to yourself about like, I can't do this. Right. Um, and yeah. so I didn't apply at that time. And this winter, I don't know that I was feeling more confident, but I certainly had more experience. And I was, I also just sort of had this sense of, I'm just going to put it out there and see what happens. Like I'm going to put my writing out there. If they say no, they say no. I'm sure they say no to a lot of people. It's not it is what it is, right? Like, I'm just going to put it out there and see what happens. And I got brought on as a part-time contributor, which has been really cool. It's also been really challenging in its own way. Kind of like, you know, we were talking about starting the podcast and how that you learn all sorts of new skills and you get used to a new process and new environments and everything. It's this. It's just like that. Um, and it's, I'll, I won't lie, it's a little intimidating. Sometimes I'm like, these are the people that I always go to, to find the super smart ideas. And so I I put a lot of pressure on myself to try to like hold a similar standard, but yeah, I I applied and I was lucky enough that they liked my writing and brought me on as a part-time contributor. And I've been writing there since the start of this season, which has been awesome. It's been incredibly fun. Everybody's been very supportive and I'm learning a ton already. I actually had someone, comment on one of my recent Bleed Cubby Blue pieces to me privately that they thought that it was a much improved piece. And they were they were kind about it. They were like, you know, I've always liked your writing, but this is really a lot better than it even had been in the past. And I have to thank uh, the editors at Fangraphs for that. Meg and John have given me so much great feedback already that I've been able to transfer that to my writing at BCB as well and I, I I can tell that my writing has improved a little bit and it's it's just been awesome. It's a really cool opportunity. I'm super grateful for it.
0: Yeah, I feel I feel smarter for reading Fangraphs. I was reading your articles. You had one on the offense, one on the hit by pitches, which I'm going to get to in a second. But like, I, I felt even smarter for reading your pieces. I thought, wow, like because I was thinking the same thing. I could see how it could be daunting because, like you said, I go to Fangraphs. I should go to it more. But I go to it and I'm like, I gotta look, go back to the glossary and remember what these specific things, how they equate or how, what they mean exactly. I thought it was spot on. It was awesome. Reading your stuff, I was like, this is really cool. So you should feel really good about that. I thought your pieces were really really great. You're continuing to evolve. I'm, in my own world, trying to evolve too. So I get that. So it's really cool that you have that opportunity and you're doing a great job. Talking about the hit-by-pitches. So I thought it was interesting. So like, I don't know. I go back to like 2015. I remember... Anthony Rizzo got hit, I want to say like six times in the first two weeks of the season against like the Rockies or something. And I thought that was weird. And I, I know he gets hit a lot. And now this year we've seen Wilson Contreras. And in general, we're seeing it a lot. And you were really going into that with your your article. You know, I know with the Cubs, it's kind of maybe the strategy is to pitch inside and people are going to get hit. But as as much as baseball kind of stays the same, it definitely changes. And maybe it's the strategy, the pitching, how they're pitching to, to guys. But yeah, what was your, I guess, maybe going into that piece and what you've kind of maybe come away with since your takeaway, I guess, with today's game and hit-by-pitches and all that?
1: So the hit-by-pitch piece was really interesting. And I admit that I had an idea of what was going on in with that, going into that piece that actually changed over the course of writing it after I did some more reading and seeing what other people were looking at. It's something that's been rising for a few seasons now like the last 3 years have all kind of outdone themselves right so we had like the most hit by pitches ever in 2018 followed by the most hit by pitches ever in 2019 uh 2020 was certainly on pace to obliterate some of those marks it's a little bit different to compare just because of the shortened season and so early in april not early in april maybe like 2 3 weeks into april i actually ran the numbers to see if it was still on pace to Rise again in 2021 and and sure enough it was. Um, and and you can sort of see that if you watch the game, you probably feel like they are throwing up and in on your particular favorite yeah. team more. You're probably noticing more guys failing to get out of the way. It was already the one incident this year. I think it was Michael Conforto. kind of leaned into one and it was a very obvious lean into one and wound up being a walk-off and people were like, come on, you can't do that. But interestingly, I I don't think, so the first thing that sort of changed my conception here, props to Rob Arthur who does great work at baseball prospectus and sometimes his work appears in the ringer as well. He looked at all of the, the universe of pitches and where they have been for the last few seasons to see if pitchers were in fact throwing inside more frequently and it, it turns out they're not I mean everything we can see about where pitchers are attacking with their pitches they're actually throwing in the zone more frequently they're not throwing at those edges more frequently which means yeah it's possible that like a one that's high and in is slipping sometimes and my piece deals with this a little bit that's actually probably happening more with relievers than it is with starters like the hit by pitch rates are up, up slightly for both of them But it's really relievers that are driving the vast majority of hit-by-pitches. And shout-out to another Fangraphs writer, Devin Fink, for that work, which was done in 2019, showing that it's just that relievers can't command those pitches as much. So they're throwing their arsenal as hard as they can, and it turns out they're throwing it hard, and occasionally it's hitting a batter. But the pitch location isn't actually changing all that much. It's actually... Hitters are behaving differently with pitches that are in the same location. Now, there's a lot of possible things that could be going on here. One is that the strategy you were mentioning, like, hey, they're pitching my team up and in. This happens to the Cubs all the time, actually. Um, And this is something that I noted in the piece. There's been a couple of other pieces written about this. So it's not all me. Um, I think Jesse Rogers at ESPN has written this up. I'm fairly certain I've read it in The Athletic, too. So I don't want to take credit for work that I did not do on my own. But the strategy for pitching Cubs hitters for the last few seasons has been you go up and in to get their eye looking up, and then you go down and away, and then they can't see it, right? Like, it's it's just to sort of change these eye levels. And all of a sudden, um, if one of those pitchers that was up and in happens to miss, well, it misses in their shoulder, it misses in their back. In the case of, you know, the Cubs have had multiple guys hit in the head with pitches um, in their helmet. Over the last three seasons, I think that Addison Russell was hit in the helmet, if I recall correctly. Chris Bryant had a really scary incident there. David Bodie had a really scary incident there. Wilson Contreras got hit in the helmet this season by the Brewers. So that's like four times in the last three calendar years that I can remember um, those incidents happening. And I, I don't remember batters getting beamed in the head all that frequently When I was growing up watching baseball, it's possible that I've just blocked that out, but that's a, that's a new memory. I'm like, this seems odd and weird. Right. Um, And, and in that instance, it's like a strategy. And so one of the things that you can see in the numbers is that 40% of the batters who are really driving Those hit-by-pitch rates, like the the batters who are getting way more than their fair share of hit-by-pitches, come from three teams. They come from the Dodgers and the Cubs and the Reds. And so you have to wonder if that's a strategy of how you're pitching those particular teams at that point in time. But the other thing that Rob mentioned in his piece I think is worth looking at, it's possible that batters just have a harder time predicting where the pitch is going at this point in time. I mean, tunneling is designed to deceive batters about where the final location of the pitch is going to be. And if it's working as well as it should, then it totally makes sense that they're misjudging where some of these balls are going and a handful, a a fair number of them are winding up in places that then hit them and they can't get out of the way. So I don't think that hitters are taking a dive necessarily. I do think that this is another instance where pitching strategy and pitching techniques are ahead of batters at the moment in a way that we can we can see in the results. We can see it in this historic number of hit batsmen.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I do remember in that piece, you mentioned relievers. And yeah, you know, and I, I think the Brewers, or team, especially on Contreras alone, that seemed to be, that strategy might be. And, you know, I guess to their credit, you know, they were like, at least in one of those games at Wrigley, they were like, I can't remember which player was like, yeah, I get why he's mad. He's been hit so many times. We're not trying to. I don't think they're trying to. Am I even trying to put that out there? But I get it. Like if you're throwing if you're pitching inside, it's gonna get away at times or you know, that can happen, but they seem to get it. And I know I definitely understand Contreras being angry because it, you know, a couple of times is one thing, especially if it's high, you're gonna be like, you know.
1: Totally. And and you know, I wrote about this a couple of years ago for Bleed Cubby Blue as well. The NL Central was kind of the the league that had the most hit by pitches three years ago. And it still has the most like team on team hit by pitch stuff going on. And again, I don't think it's because the Reds are throwing at the Cubs or the Pirates are throwing at the Cubs or the Cubs are throwing at the Cardinals or anything like that. But I do think that the strategies that teams have come up with, particularly in the Central, there's a lot of and you mentioned the Brewers. They do this a lot. They want you to be like up here so they can strike you out <laughs> something over here. And in order to do that, they have to throw up and in. And sometimes they can't control that pitch. And I, I really feel like, my, you know, as a fan, I do not want to see somebody seriously wounded because you can't control a fastball up and in. <laughs> so I feel like that's a strategy that's a particularly dangerous one. And you can see it in the numbers.
0: Exactly. I'm curious for your thoughts. So, and I think Jesse Rogers, I was listening to a couple of things on ESPN 1000 with him recently. Uh, He was talking about kind of walking the fine lines of evolution in baseball versus keeping it the same. And, you know, I'm talking about, you know, I don't know what your thoughts might be on the extra inning rule with the guy on second or banning the shift. I don't want to ban the shift. I get it. I know baseball can be boring in terms of, uh you know, it's always predictable. It's a strikeout. It's a home run. And I don't think it's boring. But I get if they're trying to change it up a little bit. And I get that they're testing it at the minor league level. But I personally don't want them to ban the shift. And it's like, in my mind, I know it's easier said than done. But I'm thinking, find a way to beat the shift, you know, instead of just banning it. Or, you know, I... I don't want to say that the extra inning thing is growing on me. I was against it, but I I will admit it was kind of exciting last week with the Cubs and Dodgers. I would still prefer not to have the man on second, but I was curious what your thoughts were on whether it's the shift or the extra inning role or, you know, because I I hate changing, in my mind, I hate changing baseball just to appeal to the non-fan as it is, or at least that's kind of how I think about it. It's like they want to make it more fast, more exciting. I get it, but there's got to be other ways versus just let's just, Speed the game up for the sake of speed speeding it up, or something like that, you know.
1: So, a couple of things. I'm going to take these questions in turn. The first thing is this issue of like should you should the game change for fans? Period. I think that the game of baseball has evolved at multiple different historical junctures. I mean, you had the year of the pitcher in 1968. The mound came down five inches. As a result, there are we have lots of you know the dead ball era wasn't fun for a lot of people. They changed that we had more offense after that. There's all sorts of different changes <laughs> that have happened in the game of baseball. So the idea that baseball is some static entity that can't change is, is kind of silly to me. Um, in terms of what those changes are though, I think you get different bang for your buck with different changes. So for example, the extra innings rule, I would like to destroy. <laughs> I hate it so much. I remember here, here are the, here are my gripes with the extra innings rule. And, and, I understand why the league likes it. I understand why nobody wants a player to get hurt in like the 16th inning. Nobody wants a pitcher playing left field in the 20th inning because you had to bring him in because somebody else couldn't come in or, you know, like all this other type of stuff, right? So I I get the motivations there. I also am particularly sensitive to the fact that if you're a beat writer or you're a person who covers the team every day, those games are hard for you in a way that they're not hard for me on my couch. Like I'm going to watch innings 11 through 18 sitting in the same place uh, in my living room. And whoever is covering that game, the players who are playing that game, the coaches who are coaching that game, they're still working. And that game means that they get home at 4am and then they have to get on the plane and then they have to do the thing and whatever. So there's a pain point here for the people who are covering this that incentivizes them to like some of these rules more than the rest of us um, that I think we should all be cognizant of as Valid, we talk yeah. about them. But
0: yeah.
1: the extra innings rule changes a, the game fundamentally at the very end, and I don't think it therefore reflects who actually won that game. We just had a really great piece on the extra innings rule on fan graphs. I think that um, Jay Jaffe wrote that piece. I'm actually going to look because – Uh, It got a ton of engagement. I'd like people to read it. And I want to make sure I'm giving credit where it is due. Yeah, Jay definitely wrote that piece. Um, And he mentions that, you know, yeah, it was kind of interesting at first. I was okay with it. But I'm done with it now. I'd like to kill it in fire, is think, the phrase that he used, which I agree with. Um, one, if you if you have to do it, maybe do it in extreme extra inning situations. Start it yeah. in the twelfth inning. Start it right. in the thirteenth inning. I, I see no reason why it has to start in the tenth inning. You mentioned those Cubs Dodgers game. I was at one of those um doubleheader games and it's a seven-inning doubleheader, which is another thing. But so the extra the the runner in extra started in the eighth inning and I was just furious. I'm like I'm scoring a baseball game at Wrigley Field between the Dodgers and the Cubs in a game that's gonna like decide if the series is a sweep or not. And it's the eighth inning and there's a ghost runner on second. That's gross. I don't need a ghost runner on second in the eighth. I don't need a ghost runner on second in the ninth. It's like the 10th is probably fine without it too. So they need to tweak that. I don't think that it should happen so early. I think that it could happen in like the 12th or 13th inning and still be fun in terms I of, agree. yeah, yeah it, it just, it just changes the nature of the game so much. I get that you don't want one of these 18 inning affairs. I, I understand why everybody who's making these decisions doesn't want that. There has to be some happy medium that preserves that. The second part of the x innings rule that really kind of bothers me is, I don't know if you remember, but the first time it was employed, it was like one of the first games of the 2020 season. And there was an, a walk-off grand slam because you had like the runner on second who got advanced or whatever. And then they walked a couple guys to set up the double play and it didn't work. Somebody hit a home run. And I just remember watching this thinking, that was a walk-off Grand Slam, and I'm not excited about it. How am I not excited about a walk-off Grand Slam? I think it cheapens extra inning runs in a way that I want to be excited when my team scores in the 11th inning. And I am i can't be when I know that the other team is going to start with a runner in scoring position and probably get at least one back. Right? It's just a level of strategy that I don't think is in tune with with the broader context of baseball. And I wish that it would get tweaked a little bit to be only introduced later. Shifting is a little bit different in my opinion. So shifting is one of those things where, yes, it has been in the game forever. Yes, you have always been able to sort of position your people where you want to position them. I do think that the data we have right at this moment in time in terms of where the ball is going and where particular players are going to hit the ball Has given defenses and pitching a a huge leg up on hitting. So, if you think about hitting for a second, one of the things that I will always remember I don't know if this was in like Ken Burns's baseball or just in some book I read when I was a kid, but the hardest thing in sports is to hit a baseball, right? Like, we celebrate the people who could do it a third of the time as being the greatest at it ever. and we have made that so much harder in the last few years that batting averages themselves are collapsing. So we're sitting here in 2021 and the league average the league batting average is the lowest that it has been in 121 years. <laughs> that is problematic. <laughs> That's not creating a game that you want to watch necessarily and it's not just batting average The BABIP number has collapsed too. So again, I don't know how stats friendly some of your listeners are, but BABIP is just the batting average for balls in play across the league. And it generally, it used to hover up in the high 200s to 300s. Like you were looking at a league average BABIP of around like 280, 270, something like that. And that has collapsed this season along with batting average. And so what that tells me is that pitchers and defenses are so far ahead of where hitters are that hitters can't catch up. And it is one thing to say, well, can't you just pull the ball or can't you just like hit it away from the shift or bunt? Why don't you bunt, right? Yes, you can do that a few times. No, you probably cannot take somebody who has been taught a certain way to hit their entire life and change all of their hitting mechanics at the age of 26 and all of a sudden turn them from a launch angle prodigy who's been hitting home runs in the minor leagues to Tony Gwynn. Like that's, we are no longer training the Tony Gwynn's or Ozzie Smith type players of the world. It's one of the reasons, and this is going to sound kind of random, but it's one of the reasons I'm sort of fascinated by your mean Mercedes. I feel like your mean Mercedes is got stuck in the minors because he wasn't this guy who was going to walk, hit home runs. He didn't really have a position. He's kind of like this, really good contact bat hanging out in the minors. And until the White Sox lost Aloy Jimenez, they didn't have a spot for him yet either. But here we are like six weeks into the season, five weeks into the season, your mean Mercedes is still raking. (laughs) Your mean Mercedes is hitting the ball everywhere. And if you watch this dude, it is ridiculous because he will hit a 485 foot home run and then he will just like beat the shift by like directing a ball to the part of the field that where the fielder is not. And it's incredible. I'm like, I I have not seen hitting like this in a long time. And I wonder how he got stuck in the minors. But then I think about the hitting philosophies of every front office over the last 15 years. I'm like, well, there you go, right? (laughs) You look at the teams who are really having successful starts. And and I'm sure this will even out at some point, but who are really having some successful approaches at the plate in 2021. You've got like the Royals and the Giants. The Royals and the Giants are not the t- prototypical offenses of the last six years—they're—they're they're actually like kind of built on these guys who were part who had been cut from a bunch of other teams. <laughs> like we're not getting it done with other teams, and they're just like, "Oh yeah, we're just gonna like hit some singles and like drive in some runs, and oh, whoops, that that wins baseball games? I love it. It's great. I think that so it's not so much that I want to like radically sh- change the rules to be like there's an illegal defense if you do blah blah blah." But I do think something needs to happen to give hitters a better chance. (laughs) And so I am pro rule changes that give hitters a better chance as long as those rule changes are tested and we have an idea of what the results will be. Because I feel like MLB has this tendency to just put these rules out there and be like, hey, look at this. And then we wind up with something terrible like the extra innings thing.
0: I think that's fair, yeah. And yeah, like you said, I know like it's easier said than done to just tell a player, like you said, a veteran to, oh, just do this. I get that, because you also don't want them to break their, I want to say habit, but their strength by doing something different. Like we might see a Rizzo put down the bunt but he's going to do what he's going to do. And he's going to be more successful doing it that way that he's been doing versus just suddenly. I mean, it's one thing if you can sort of reinvent yourself, like a, like a a starting pitcher, like a John Lester, who's older in his career. But like, like you said, it's not easy to just all of a, all of a sudden, okay, just do that. You know, that'd be like me trying to learn Spanish all of a sudden.
1: (laughs) Well, I am always and constantly trying to learn Spanish. It is one of the great regrets of my life that uh, we didn't speak it more as a family growing up. (laughs) Um, but not Spanish for a second. You know the the example I always think of with how hard it is to change a swing and how much damage you can do in the process. I don't know if you remember when Jason Hayward came over to the Cubs in 2016. One of the things that they wanted to do was to reinvent his swing to get more launch yeah. angle there. And in doing so, they took somebody who had been like a five war player who had great a great contact bat, but maybe not like your favorite home run swing and actually made him a much worse hitter. And it took like two seasons for him to get a swing back that looked comfortable. And I, look, I'm not saying that the reinventing of Jason Hayward's swing was the only thing that was going on that made Jason Hayward struggle in his early years with the Cubs. But I am saying that it's a lot harder to just tell a professional, can't you just hit the ball differently? Can't you just direct it over there than we think it is Hitting has always been one of the hardest things in sports. So it is interesting to me who is succeeding at this and who is not. It is interesting to me the extent to which pitchers are trying to gain an edge and in doing so, like, I mean, if you look at, I'm telling you, strikeout numbers, batting average and BABBIT are the three things that I look at and I'm just like, they're all at either, like, record highs or record lows and that is a right. bad combination for offense and baseball it means that you're going to have a lot of guys left on base and a lot of strikeouts and a lot of a lot of no hitters incidentally which is the thing that yeah, i've just been exactly working the on no
0: hitters it's insane i know i was about to say the no hitter thing has been insane it's awesome but it's almost like wow we're almost seeing one a week it feels like i would say this too um I am not advocating for ties whatsoever. However, I would almost prefer that. Like you said, I feel like it, uh, You know, if we had to do the, the man on second and twelve, I get that twelve innings. Okay, fine. Because most games will probably end, but by the tenth or eleventh, we wouldn't have to see it. Maybe uh, I almost would rather see ties than having a guy on second. But you know, I, Jed Hoyer was a guy that's a long proponent of doing this man on second thing. And I'm like, I get it from a team perspective. Like you said. They don't want their bullpen to be short for a week or two weeks or whatever the case may be. So uh, I do get that. And yeah, very very interesting, though, what you were talking about the shift aspect. Like that's a good, that's very insightful. So I appreciate you uh, kind of explaining and breaking that down a bit because uh, yeah, it's like I, I totally get that. You know, you don't want to see boring baseball. Like I think Theo Epstein's the perfect guy to kind of help in his role with major league baseball to try to fix things, whether it's if they want to move the mound back a little bit, I'm down with that. I don't think that's going to bother me too much. I just hate, like you said, the man on second fundamentally changing the game versus little tweaks that could be done. I think that's, you know, I could, I'm down with the the tweaks, things like that, that might help the game or improve the game in certain ways.
1: Yeah. I don't know about, I mean, I don't know what the tweaks are going to be. I don't know what moving the mound back would look like or or any of these types of things. I think that, I agree with you fundamentally that I trust Theo to lead the charge here. I, I have an immense amount of faith in Theo Epstein. My second yeah, favorite yeah. team is the Red Sox because I lived there for six years when all of that was going on. So I'm like, the- Theo forever. Theo can lead every charge. Like Theo for commissioner. Like let's get Theo right. in yeah. to run the whole right. league. I would be perfectly Agreed. happy with that. The what I worry about with moving the mound back. It's kind of like what I was worried about at the start of this season with changing the ball. Because remember, MLB came out and said, oh, we're going to deaden the ball. It'll be yeah. fine. We're just going to like take away yeah. 5% of home runs or whatever.
0: No, you have no hitters. Yeah. Well,
1: they took away those home runs. And I think they thought all of them were going to become doubles or something. But they obviously didn't. Like, a lot of them are just long flyouts now. So you took away offense <laughs> in a game you were trying to get more action into. I just feel like sometimes yeah. MLB leaps before they look. And they wind yeah. up causing the exact opposite of what they thought they were going to cause. They're like, "We will give you this new ball, and it will bring baseball back." And it's like, "No, your new ball actually has brought some like weird year of the pitcher too that none of yeah. us asked for."
0: Yeah, it's like like it's one extreme or the other. The the offense is insane, or it's the year of the no hitter. All of a sudden, I, I love the no hitters, but it's almost like, okay, what's going on here? <laughs> So, it's it's interesting. But, yeah, I, I, I think I'm okay with the potential mound change if it's like a subtle little tweak. I don't want to move it back two feet or anything like that. But, if they think 10 inches, or I don't even know if 10 inches is too much, I I have no idea. Whatever... Potentially could you know if they were to do that, I think that would be potentially okay. But like you said, I don't want to just move it back three feet or anything like that. But uh yeah, this was a great combo with you. I feel much smarter having talked with you. We'll definitely have to do this again one day. Like I'm serious, like very good stuff coming. Uh, you know, really interesting perspective and really glad that we did this.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a blast.
0: t